Welcome to Wyoming, my 307. I'm Carla Mowell, and I wish you a very Merry Christmas. Our episode today is a little bit different. You know, I read a lot of books about Wyoming, and I've been collecting stories and anecdotes about Christmas in Wyoming. Think of it as my Christmas gift to you. Let's start with a famous ride 24 years before we even reached statehood. The situation was desperate at Fort Phil Kearney in Dakota Territory on the evening of December 21, 1866. Shortly after noon that day, hundreds of Sioux, Northern Cheyenne, and Northern Arapaho warriors had annihilated Captain William J. Fetterman and the 80 men under his command. They were on the far side of a bleak, windswept ridge, out of sight of the post but within earshot. Five wagons sent to retrieve the fallen returned after nightfall bearing a ghastly cargo of 49 frozen bodies. More than one quarter of the fort's fighting men had died with Fetterman. Ammunition stocks had been inadequate from the beginning of the operation and were dangerously low now. Best estimates were that some 1,500 to 3,000 warriors were still in the vicinity eager to finish the fight. Such were the circumstances when Captain Carrington asked for civilian volunteers to carry news of the disaster and his plea for reinforcements. Their only hope was Fort Laramie, a perilous 236-mile ride to the southeast. Now, so far in his life, John Phillips, a wiry man with dark eyes and a pointed beard, had done little to distinguish himself from the thousands of other seekers out west. But at that critical moment, Portagee Phillips agreed to make the ride for help and thus rode into his place in history. John Phillips was actually born Manuel Felipe Cardoso on Pico Island in the Azores in April 1832. His first language was Portuguese, hence his nickname Portagee. As a teen, he left the archipelago aboard an American whaling ship to seek his fortune in the California gold fields. He anglicized his name soon after arrival, and Phillips spent the next 15 years drifting from one strike to another, bouncing from California to Oregon and Washington territories before landing in Dakota Territory, including present-day Wyoming. Now, he never struck it rich. The summer of 1866 found him prospecting in the Pryor and Bighorn Mountains. As winter approached, Phillips and fellow diggers thought it would be best to seek paid work. The major employer in the area was the U.S. Army, whose regional mission was to safeguard Montana-bound travelers on the Bozeman Trail. So Captain Carrington gave Phillips his choice of the garrison's horses. The courier did in fact choose the colonel's favorite, a horse named Dandy. Almost exactly four days later, on Christmas night, Phillips stumbled from the frigid darkness of Fort Laramie parade grounds into the midst of a full-dress garrison ball. Outside, the snow had accumulated 10 to 15 inches, the temperature dropping to 25 below zero. One can imagine the astonishment of the officers in full-dress uniform and ladies in their finery when Portagee Phillips in ice-encrusted buffalo overcoat, hat, and gauntlets, his lower legs wrapped in feed sacks, 
stumbled in from the parade ground. He asked in raspy tones to see the commanding officer, with whom he imparted the stunning news of the Fetterman disaster and Fort Phil Kearney's dire predicament. Philip's feat was extraordinary. His personal courage, commitment, and stamina are beyond question, and thanks to his fortitude, Fort Phil Kearney got its desperately needed reinforcements and supplies. I want to take a minute to thank active duty service members now, as well as veterans and their families. Thank you for putting your life on hold to serve our country and for the sacrifices you've made, especially when it means being apart at Christmas. Now I want to tell you another story about Christmas in the Mountains around 1879. I found this in a wonderful book called Wyoming Folklore, which is a collection from the Federal Writers Project, which was done during the Great Depression. This was a story collected by Charles Folks from Agnes Baxter of Evanston, Wyoming. Here's what she said. In the year 1879, my husband John M. Baxter and my brother Isaac Smith went to work in the mountains about 15 miles west of Bear Lake. I'd never been in the mountains before, and this was indeed a beautiful place. With its tall pines and balsam trees, service berries and wild currant bushes, the aroma of them scenting the air, I was just captivated by the sights. September 10th of the year, we had our first fall of snow. It was three feet of the beautiful stuff, but it forced us to move to the UO Mill 10 miles west. There my husband built us a log cabin with two rooms. One was large enough to accommodate 12 boarders who ate their meals with us while they were working at the mill. At this time we had another of my brothers come to live at the mill. His name was James Smith. He had a wife and baby girl three months old. All went well until the 20th of December when a severe snowstorm came. The snow continued to fall for 13 days and was 12 to 15 feet deep. During this storm, we did not see the sun. The loggers returned home to their families, leaving us snowbound, three men, two women, and a baby. Christmas came. Oh, what a lovely holiday season. We could see nothing but snow, beautiful snow. But that was before we saw so much of it. Our cabin was entirely snowed over. The men had to dig a trench from our house to the stream, and with these two high walls of snow, it looked as if we were buried alive. We then made skis. When the snow was firm and settled, we went out to the hillside and practiced sliding with them until we became quite expert. You can imagine our homesickness when we had no communication from our friends. We decided at last that we could endure this loneliness no longer, and we made up our minds that we would get home. Snow sleighs were made. Then we waited for the weather to clear a bit before we made our effort to escape from our snowy imprisonment. Oh, how long it seemed, just waiting. At last the day came when we could commence our treacherous journey. The men loaded our truck, some bedding, and some food on one of the sleighs. On January 8th, 1880, at 10 o'clock in the morning, we made our start. My brother James, his wife and baby, Sam Smith, a friend, my husband, and myself. We could not use the skis only for about a mile, as it was a very steep climb to the top of the ridge. So we arrived, making our way very slowly to the top without a mishap, 
except Toby the cat who ran away from us. He became frightened of a porcupine and climbed a tree, and that was the last time we ever saw him. Although we were told that he went about five miles down the canyon to where Brother Sam Pike lived. Night was falling and we had to camp in a little grove of pine trees. We had to shovel the snow away and made a bed of pine boughs. Dry trees were cut down to keep a fire burning all night. Immediately after breakfast next morning, we commenced our journey anew. The snow began to fall again. It was wet and heavy, and our skis became so heavy with wet snow that it was impossible to use them. So we abandoned them and waded through the deep snow, which by this time was waist-deep. My brother James was pulling the sleigh in which the baby was riding, and while he was going around a steep mountain, the sleigh overturned, throwing the box with the baby down the mountainside. You can imagine our anguish. We hurried to the overturned box and found Baby, sitting up, smiling. We were overjoyed, and the baby seemed to have enjoyed her thrilling escapade. We traveled this way until sundown. We were worn and weary. We again made a fire, and as it burned, it was gradually sinking down, down, into the snow until it looked as though we were looking into a deep well. We did not receive any warmth from this fire and we were tired and worn out. Our clothing was wet and frozen stiff. We were very hungry, not having had anything since breakfast. We knew that we were not far from a hollow where people had a wood road. They used it in the winter time, leading to the timber. My brother James started out for help and was not long gone when he returned with two men bringing a team and a sleigh. It was not long before we reached Garden City. Accommodations were not good in those days. We just had one large room for everyone. We made our beds on the floor and put our quilts over and under us. We slept in our wet clothes and with the warm fire we had a real steam bath and awakened in the morning feeling quite refreshed and none the worse for our thrilling experience. What a tale, right? The desire to connect and be with loved ones is really strong this time of year, and it has many of us traveling across town, state, or country to get to those that we love the most, or anxiously waiting for our loved ones to come through the door. Please be safe in your travels this holiday season, and pack some extra snacks, but don't drink and drive. I say that because this is the booziest time of year according to alcohol sales. So I thought you might be interested in a home remedy for headaches. I found it in a wonderful book called A Taste of Heritage, Crow-Indian Recipes and Herbal Medicines by Alma Hogan Snell. Her grandmother was the great Ipsalaki medicine woman, Pretty Shield. She says, feel a headache coming on and don't have any willow bark around? Eat four or five cedar berries. It should clear it right up. The little berries from the cedar that creeps low to the ground are also good for sore throats and lung congestion. Then the editor makes this note. Junipers and cedars regularly cause confusion, not just because there are more crow words for them than English words. A huge range of unrelated plants are commonly called cedars. The cedar berries referred to here are from the creeping juniper, Juniperus horizontalis. So no need to run to the store if you got cedar berries. Let's fast forward now to 1908. 
I got this story from Tom Davis's Glimpses of Grable Past. This is a wonderful compilation of newspaper articles, and he tells us about the 1908 Grable Christmas tree. We didn't go to the mountains and get a Christmas tree in those days. It was too far to go in a wagon, and it was too cold, explained Mrs. Oscar Haywood, who was then Gladys Engel. But some man up on Trapper felt sorry for us children down here, and he brought us down one Christmas tree, and that was for everybody. They wanted to pay the man for it, but he said, nah, he'd brought it for the children. So they sent oranges home with him for his family for Christmas. You didn't have oranges all the time in those days. You just had oranges for Christmas. They put the Christmas tree up in Blackley Hall, and we had a great big Christmas party. We all got up and spoke pieces and everything. We prepared for that for weeks ahead. I have one more great book recommendation for you. Bruce Kennedy's Getting the Bull by the Tail. Bruce had a regional newspaper column, and I think of him as the Norman Rockwell of columnists. He had a way of capturing everyday situations and small town life. You can still buy his book online, but it's out of print, so get it while you can. Here's what he said about Christmas wish lists. I loved that cartoon in the paper the other day where the little boy was saying, and a frisbee for Aunt Nancy and a harmonica for Grandma. In our family, we call those trucks. Getting something for someone that you'd like to have yourself. Trucks stem back to the time years ago when we asked the little boy in our family what he thought his sister would like. I think she'd like a truck, he told us. I hope you get something special under the Christmas tree this year. If you have to, just order it online yourself. You're worth it. I don't want you to think that these magical Christmas stories are only in our long-ago past, so I'll end with a more current story. This is from the book One Man Against the Mountain. It's the story of his quest to survive winter alone in the Bighorns. I picked this book up from Danny Longwell himself. He's the protagonist of this book written by Mary Jo Mosher. Danny chose to live in a canvas tent through a brutal Wyoming winter up in the Bighorn Mountains. After having settled into his camp with his two dogs, Misty and Spuds, he allowed himself the luxury of coming down the mountain to spend Christmas with his wife, Billy, and their children. Billy and the kids occupied his thoughts as he trudged down the trail. It had been three weeks since he'd last seen Billy. He imagined the house festively decorated for Christmas, the company that would gather around the table on Christmas Day, and the traditional present opening that would follow. It would be a good time, a respite from the cruel winter that awaited his return, and he had lots to talk about and lots to hear from them. Only a couple of miles to go before arriving at the lane and warmth. That is, if Billy had received his message and remembered to pick him up. If she hadn't, the trip would be several miles longer. Misty and Spuds, walking a short distance behind him and realizing that they were on the last stretch, broke into a trot for home, most likely thinking that the old man was moving much too slow. Danny heard them trotting behind him and quickly turned to avoid being run over. As he moved, he felt something pull inside his leg and a sharp pain. Dang dogs, he yelled after them. It was pain speaking words he didn't mean. He stood still for a moment, 
hoping the pain would subside, and after a while it did. But each time he lifted a snowshoe, a sharp pain shot down his leg, stopping him. He had come all this way, he had nearly made it, but the pain that screamed in his groin with every move made the remaining distance seem like a hundred miles, and at the end of it, the possibility of no rescue. With great effort, Dan struggled on, stopping in spurts when the pain was at its worst, until he met the fence line at the edge of the lane. Though it was beginning to grow dark, he could tell it was covered in snow, but he thought a vehicle, especially one with four-wheel drive, could make it through. Desperately cold, yet not able to take another step, he collapsed against a fence post, hoping to hear the sound of an approaching vehicle, knowing he wouldn't make it the rest of the way on his own. Minutes seemed like hours as the snow kept falling. There was no sign of life in the empty fields or on the road, just darkness and the sound of wind whispering across the snow. Something inside him told him she wasn't coming. She had missed his message. Maybe this is it, he thought. The end of his winter on the mountain. The end of his life, for that matter. And he had only just begun. All that work. Sawing, chopping, hauling, shoveling, and for what, to die at the mountain's foot? It seemed that endless time had passed. Dan sat in the snow, legs outstretched, head drooping, struggling to keep his brain working against sleep, for if he succumbed to it, it would be all over. As he sat there, he no longer felt the cold. He was too numb to feel anything, and growing too sleepy to care. He was tired of fighting, and though winter had only begun, he wasn't sure he wanted to face three more months of this brutality. He was ready to face humiliation and admit defeat. Suddenly, through half-closed eyelids, he thought he saw vehicle lights approach. Was he hallucinating or was it real, he wondered, as he forced his eyes open. Billy, I hope it's you, he muttered weakly into the darkness, because if it isn't, with numb fingers, he grabbed the fence post and struggled against it to pull himself to his feet, his intent to make himself bigger, more likely to be seen. But he couldn't move. He couldn't stand. His legs were gone, his snowshoes holding him down. He could only sit there, hoping desperately that Billy or whoever it was would find him. He tried to keep his sleep-heavy eyes on the vehicle as it drove closer, turned on its high beams, and aim them in his direction, bathing the cascading snow in a yellow light that made him think he had gone to heaven. He imagined the light beam stopping several yards away, someone getting out of the vehicle, now walking towards him slowly, as in a dream. Someone was with her, helping her unfasten his snowshoes, pulling him to his feet, half dragging him to the vehicle, his frozen legs buckling under him, and then his head began to clear. He was in Billy's car, safely on his way home, and she had opened all the windows so he wouldn't overheat. The ride seemed to take forever, but when it ended, he was home at last, pulled into the house, plopped onto a chair, his boots, cap, and outer clothing removed, and a cup of hot chocolate shoved into his icy hands. His body still shook with cold, but not as violently as it had before. 
knowing how to treat someone who was near freezing and the dangers of thawing too fast billy helped him into a cool tub of water gradually adding warm water until a rosy color began to appear on his face and hands and he could move his fingers and feel his toes later when dan was closer to being himself billy's concerned voice asked do you feel like eating something dan nodded and billy left for the kitchen to warm up leftovers from that evening's supper the next several days he would be warm looking up at the white mountain with its arctic breath knowing he would soon return to resume the battle against the deadly cold of winter. But should he? Did he want to? Right now he wasn't sure, perhaps. But not until he had been fully warmed down to the bone, well-fed and rested and could walk again, then he would decide. Christmas Day arrived with all the festivity and house-filled aromas of the holidays including a roasting turkey and all that was custom to go with it. Dan by this time had recovered from the cold, ate heartily, savoring home cooking and the variety of it, prepared by experienced cooks. After dinner, he hobbled to his easy chair where he sat, legs and feet extended, eyes half closed, listening to the chatter of conversation that permeated the room, knowing it would soon be replaced by a silence broken only by a mischievous wind, Misty and Spuds his only companions. Time passed all too quickly, as it seems to every holiday season, when festive get-togethers with family and friends drown worries and lift spirits. Those times were over now. A new year had begun. Dan was on his feet, strong enough to return. He awoke the morning of his departure to sunshine and relative warmth, though the air was crisp, a perfect day for a long walk. After breakfast, he stood in front of the picture window, his hands wrapped comfortably around a hot cup of coffee, enjoying the warmth while staring at the mountain, looking slyly peaceful and benign, its top fully visible in a cloudless sky, and wondering if it were ready for his return, or if he was ready for the mountain for that matter and that's a wrap please check the show notes at wyomingmy307.blogspot.com you will find links to the resource materials i used for today's episode follow me on instagram wyomingmy307 for a daily dose of wonderful wyoming and you can always reach me at wyomingmy307 at gmail.com I hope you enjoyed my little gift of Wyoming Christmas, and I wish you and yours a safe, prosperous, and happy new year.